the privilege is always greater for the one who gets to spend the most time studying. I'm convinced of that. And the joy is huge to simply relay uh, the, the treasures in Scripture so that we can all benefit this morning from looking into God's Word. Would you pray with me now as we ask God's Spirit to do the work that none of us can do in and of ourselves? Lord, it is because your, your eye diffused a quickening ray that we have hope this morning. It gave us life. We awoke and the dungeon flew open. The doors came open. The light shone in. And now we can boldly approach your throne. And that song that we just sang has stood the test of time because it is so amazingly true. And so it's with this confidence that we come as your children today, your family, to hear from you, our chief shepherd, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a mediator like no other, an intercessor like no other, a peacemaker like no other. I pray that as we look into these incredible themes this morning, you would give us grace to see what we don't see to allow our hearts to respond with just a running towards your mercy and your grace because we've come to see more clearly the heart of God. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Eva Kaur and her 10-year-old twin sister Miriam, pictured on the screen here, saw the rest of her family for the last time when they jumped aboard some cattle cars headed from Romania to what they believed was just a day at a work camp. Instead, to their horror, they arrived at the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz. As soon as it was discovered that they were twins, medical experiments began on Eva and Miriam by the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengel, the so-called angel of death. For approximately nine months, this happened, sometimes leaving them unable to even walk. And after nearly starving to death and suffering from the incessant medical experiments, they were one day incredibly rescued by a Ukrainian unit of the Soviet army. Unfortunately, though, Eva's life was not a pain-free life from that point on. She went on to live in Israel for a time before meeting her husband, an American, who brought her back to the States to live in Indiana. But even as a Holocaust survivor in America, she was ridiculed, had swastikas spray-painted on her driveway, and bricks thrown time and time again through her windows. By her own admission, she was a woman consumed with bitterness. It wasn't until she met a man who personally signed the death certificates for those doomed to the gas chambers at Auschwitz, the man who signed not actual names, just a number of how many were exterminated that day. In her conversation with this man, he told her, this is the nightmare I live with every day of my life. And in the shaky voice of a man who represented her greatest source of anger and hatred, she finally saw true sorrow and genuine remorse. Eva writes, In that moment, I discovered that I had one power left in life. I could forgive the Nazis for what they did to me. I felt such freedom. I was no longer a tragic prisoner. 
I was free of Auschwitz. I was free of Mengel. And if I would only have come to forgive sooner, I would have 50 years of my life back. Her final remark was this. I have come to learn forgiveness is the seed of peace. Eva's words powerfully picture the life-giving nature of genuine forgiveness. The story of Philemon also paints a portrait of forgiveness that is staggering and amazing. And in the most beautiful manner has been laid down for us in God's word. And as we return to the story for the second straight week, we see the Apostle Paul building a bridge between his beloved Philemon to his runaway slave Onesimus. And as a way of remembering all the pieces to be kept in view this morning, let's, let's once again read together the entire letter this morning of Philemon. Follow along as I read. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have had toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your own owing even your, owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of, of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Last week we framed up the overall plot of our story 
But we left room to press deeper to evaluate this final episode in Paul's masterful appeal to his dear friend Philemon. So let's review some of the most significant handholds that we need in order to think accurately about this incredible short story. First, we noted the three main parties involved. The Apostle Paul, who's a prisoner for Christ Jesus in Rome, he's writing to Philemon, asking him to embrace his runaway slave, no longer as a bondservant, but as his fellow believer. Next is Philemon, who's a wealthy businessman known for his gifts of encouragement and hospitality and being particularly good at refreshing the hearts of the saints. He hosts the church at Colossae in his home as evident proof of this. He has been wronged. Philemon has. His valuable bondservant Onesimus has gone AWOL, and he has been left to pick up all the pieces. The third character is Onesimus, who, for whatever reason, chose to flee his post. He winds up in Rome and interfaces with the Apostle Paul, who ends up leading him to Christ, and consequently sends Onesimus back to Philemon in Colossae. But not as the man he was when he first met Paul, as a man transformed by the gospel of Christ. Secondly, we noted the importance of gaining a sense of the day and age in which Paul is writing, the day and age in which he conducted business and he lived and ministered. And it's helpful for us, lest we go the route that some have and see this only as a document significant for a particular topic, the topic of slavery, emancipation, these sorts of things. While this is certainly the backdrop and we want to look in a snapshot of what that world looked like, there's certainly so much more for us. We discussed how slavery was quite different than our more recent understanding of how slavery operated in the early years of even our country. We noted that while a slave's life could be awful if he had a cruel master, and it certainly was for so many. But more often than not, it it was a means for a person to uh, rise the social ladder. It's been estimated that somewhere between a third and half of all of Rome was technically enslaved. Slavery was not targeted toward a a particular one ethnic group as the Roman Empire was expanding and conquered peoples were coming by the droves, nor was there any sort of external identifier of who these people would be. They were as varied as the cities that they lived in. Many individuals would willingly become indentured servants in order to gain fully funded education or be fully trained in a new skill or to absolve themselves of debt so they can work that system for a while and come out and reemerge into society with a whole new set of talents and abilities. It was just common. And as we mentioned, perhaps the most notable difference between first century slavery and concepts familiar to us today was the fact that one's freedom could be purchased. Most slaves were under their master for about 10 years, and typically by one's late 30s, they were freed. Helpful backdrop, nothing more than that, to help us frame up the story. Thirdly, we noted the obligations and responsibilities of each party involved. Onesimus, as a man, was one most fundamentally in need of God's forgiveness. 
This was the basis for which he would even have the categories to begin the process of pursuing reconciliation with his former master. We then highlighted Philemon's role as a genuine spirit-filled believer who is called to demonstrate the gospel's power to reconcile with a believer who has legitimately wronged him. Philemon was to forgive Onesimus even as God and Christ had forgiven him. This week we want to spend a little bit more time looking into the role and the example of the Apostle Paul in this story who enjoyed God's promised blessing for those who serve as peacemakers. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount that those who make for peace will be called the sons of God. Paul's sons in the faith here are in conflict. But instead of remaining aloof or or disengaged, Paul enters into this role of mediator and in so doing powerfully lives out the gospel before us. Best we know from history, this is sort of an entree into the rest of the story. Best we know from history, it would have been well within Onesimus' rights as a slave to seek out mediation from a third party if he sensed he had reached this impasse with his master or if arbitration of a certain dispute was necessary. This apparently was a, a normal thing. Perhaps, and I stress, perhaps, This is what led him to pursue Paul. Who better, right? So Paul might serve as this intercessor and mediator on his behalf. Maybe that's what's going on. But Paul continues, as we look at verse 17 now, he continues his appeal to Philemon. In verse 17, Paul begins to pull together all the pieces of this delicately organized and masterfully diplomatic appeal to Philemon. He says to Philemon, If you consider me to be your partner, receive Onesimus as if you are receiving me. So what kind of partnership does Paul have in mind? Well, the same root word that Paul uses in verse 6, allow your eyes to run back up to verse 6, The same word that he uses for when he prays that the sharing of their faith would become effective is the same idea. This this partnership, this fellowship, the same concept appearing here. So in other words, when Paul prays generally at the beginning of his appeal that their partnership or fellowship in Christ would come alive, it would it would ignite into good works of all different kinds. This is what he prays here. He's now saying, I'm getting specific on what was general earlier. This is what I had in mind. That the effectiveness of this partnership would look a certain way. The receiving of Onesimus. So does Philemon consider Paul his partner in gospel enterprise? It's sort of a rhetorical question. If you... If you consider me your partner, well, does he? You better believe he does. He owes his very life, spiritually speaking, to the Apostle Paul. Even in the short letter, Paul speaks of his personal refreshment that he has derived from Philemon. Assuredly, they are in lockstep in their love and respect for one another. And it's on this level of Christian love 
the relationship that Paul has with Philemon, that Paul then puts his neck on the line for Onesimus, saying Philemon ought to extend that same degree, that same level of love and partnership and fellowship and sharing in Christ to now the offended party. He places himself right there. Do you love me? To that same strength of that cord and that bond of love that we have. Extend that into the connector of Onesimus' heart. That's where I want this to go. So Paul tells Philemon to now receive this idea of welcome, a wholehearted embrace. Paul uses this repeatedly in Romans 14 and 15 when he's talking about the strong and the weak. Welcome one another. This is this arms around each other. Philemon's called to receive Onesimus with as much delight and Christian affection as he would extend to the most famous apostle the church would ever know. Paul brings to the table all the relational capital that he has with Philemon. And he wants Philemon to grasp at the deepest level that the understandable acrimony and angst that he has towards Onesimus, perhaps has, most likely has, is of such little consequence when placed side by side to the eternal value of knowing this brother's soul has been rescued from the impending wrath of God. This is a perspective that's been altered by gospel priorities. Now, wouldn't you agree that our perspectives can become so limited to our own sense of how the universe ought to figure out a way to align itself in such a way that rights all of our personal wrongs and punishes all who've offended us, that we can just lose perspective. And yet, this is not how Christ leads us to think. Even as we studied in the book of James from a couple years ago now on Sunday mornings, there's a sort of upside-down nature to Christian relationships, which is actually right side up. We just live in an upside down world. But James 2 demonstrates just how easy it is to show favoritism towards wealthy people in, in his particular argument and how totally natural it is to show disdain for poor people, those who haven't quite risen to what we think of as our level. Completely normal. Only problem is the gospel wrecks that kind of thinking. Being united in Christ means we're united to God's family, regardless of skin color, social status, bank account numbers, or whatever. And in this short story, that whatever is one's personal history with a fellow believer, good or bad. Paul's thought is furthered in verse 18 and 19 when he writes, If Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to his account? No. Charge that to my account, Paul writes. I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So Paul ups the ante here by now saying he will personally pay the invoice for all the costly grievances incurred by Onesimus, if that's what's necessary. 
Now, by the repeated use of if, we don't know what precisely Paul has in mind. We don't know if this is a theoretical if, that perhaps there was nothing, but just in case. Maybe, though, maybe he knows that Onesimus has racked up approximately a year, two years, five years. We don't know the length of time of a year's salary. And this is significantly cost Philemon. Does he know precisely of some particular items that were taken from this man? It's left vague to us. But whether large or small, Paul is willing to stand in the gap and absorb the just payment of whatever legitimate repayments need to be made. So whether or not Philemon took Paul up on his offer for remuneration, we'll never know. It's not the point. As the Christian mediator par excellence Paul willingly offers to take the blows that Onesimus has rightly earned in order to see forgiveness and reconciliation and ultimately Christian love flourish between these two parties. Paul didn't do anything wrong. And yet he offers to take the pain so both parties can be restored. Think about that. And let me ask you this. Do Paul's actions remind you of anyone? Is there someone else you know who involved himself at his own expense so others might be reconciled to an offended party? Is there someone else you know who selflessly inserted himself into your desperate predicament? freely offering to pay all your debts and to receive all the just payment and punishment that you deserve because of your ridiculous, foolish, wicked choices? Is there someone else you know who asked the offended to receive the offender on the merits of the mediator? Is this clicking, brothers and sisters? If you are a believer this morning, you read between the lines. You know the role that's being played here. And it's none other than your Lord Jesus Christ. He has done this for us. This is why reconciliation between believers is so demonstrably powerful. Because it shouts from the rooftops the very heart of the gospel. This is what we are called to in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, even our churches. And if you close your heart off to forgiveness, are you any different from the man in the parable that Tim just read a few moments ago from Matthew 18? Are you not as cold-hearted and ungrateful as that man who, who had utterly forgotten how fortunate he had been? To have been forgiven a massive debt of millions upon millions of dollars probably. And then the nerve to come around and find someone who's in his debt for what is in comparison pennies. And to try to choke him out right there on the sidewalk. Unbelievable. Brother or sister, don't do this. Don't go that route. Be warned by that parable. Your redeemed heart must never forget the unpayable debt that you owed God on account of your sin. In your fairly comfortable American Christian subculture, don't ever give in to gospel amnesia. 
where we just forget our rottenness and our sinfulness before God, who has freely and fully pardoned us. This was the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul, who's writing this short letter. The more he apparently came to know of God through Christ, the more he saw himself as the chief of sinners. The more he longed to be absent with the body and present with the Lord. To truly know the Lord is to be an imitator of God, as Ephesians 5 tells us. Which means forgiveness will flow freely and genuinely from our hearts. Well, at the end of verse 19, Paul offers now a subtle reminder that Philemon is actually in his debt. So from a human perspective, Paul's efforts in preaching the gospel amounts to the reason Philemon is a Christian today. Paul continues in verse 20, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in Christ. Refresh my heart in Christ. So, Is this an out-of-bounds move by Paul here? Is he bordering on manipulation? Kind of a, it's time to call in a favor for my previous kindness to you kind of move? Is Paul thinking pragmatically, hey, if I need to go outside the lines a little bit, lay on the guilt trip, you know, to get the deal done, I'll do it. The end justifies the means. Is that what's going on? I don't think so. Paul is actually serving Philemon by drawing his attention ultimately through himself towards God's forgiveness of his own sin. While Paul was the human agent, he really, really, really wants Philemon to not become another Matthew 18 unforgiving servant. He doesn't want to see his friend start to choke out his runaway slave on the path home. Exact opposite context of the parable of the prodigal son. He doesn't want to see this. And when placed side by side to the debt that he's been forgiven through the human vessel of Paul, it puts it all in perspective. In verse 20, he leverages the strength of his bond of love and friendship with Philemon by boldly saying, I want some benefit from you. So Paul uses a word here uh, that's used only one time in the whole Bible. But he makes his request by esteeming and honoring Philemon in this appeal, once again, to Philemon's well-honed skills of refreshing Christian hearts. He's just good at it. And Paul kindly honors him by leveraging what he's good at and says, here we go again. Do what you do. Refresh hearts but do it by means of a hard and necessary step. Finally, before giving his final greetings, Paul concludes with the following sentiments in verses 21 and 22. He writes, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. At the time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Such a a delicate and beautiful appeal here by Paul. Earlier, he makes it abundantly clear that he is not invoking his apostolic authority to make his request to Philemon. And yet it is clear that this appeal, nonetheless, which is on the basis of love and is constantly deferential, 
wanting all the, the joys of obedience to just flood right towards Philemon. Paul doesn't want to take any credit for the good that happens here. But he nonetheless expects a measure of obedience, confident of your obedience. So Paul knows his friend. And just as he's expressed confidence in the transformation that has taken place with Onesimus, remember he entrusted Tychicus and Onesimus to carry Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, these letters from Rome to deliver them. It's a lot of trust in someone that you still might have some questions about. He knows this is a transformed man. The same confidence that he has in his newfound brother in the Lord, he knows his brother Philemon. There's a confidence there to do not just simple compliance, but even more than he's asked. So is this, as some have speculated, Paul's discreet way of implying that Philemon had better emancipate Onesimus? Well, I don't know. Only the Lord knows, ultimately. Perhaps. Perhaps he, he did so and sent him back to Paul to continue be a, uh, to be of encouragement to him. We don't know. But, it's, but certainly, it was Paul saying, this letter here is just a catalyst. Just a catalyst. Now, allow the Spirit of God to direct you to all kinds of additional ways in which you can live out the transformation and the, the joy of reconciliation and forgiveness so that all might see the heart of God in this story. Paul even offers his own return to Colossae as a gentle way of saying, I personally just want to follow up and see what God does in and through you in this situation. I hope by God's grace I can come. Leave a light on for me. Keep a bed ready. So let's recap the progression of Paul's peacemaking or mediating actions in this story. First, he listens. He listens to Onesimus, doesn't he? Wouldn't have he had a lot of legitimacy to hear, here's, here's a man who's not a Christian coming to him with petty personal matters. He may not know him. He might. We don't know. But he comes and Paul could say, ah, you kidding me? My to-do list being an apostle is not easy. Okay, I've got so much to do. But he doesn't do that. He listens. He hears out this man. And secondly, he realizes that any further subsequent dialogue or counsel is going to be grounded in something. He goes right for Onesimus' greatest need, which is God's forgiveness. He grounds it all there. Before him is a suffering individual, but in puny comparison to what that suffering could like, look like in the life to come. And so he goes right for his greatest need. After Onesimus comes to faith, Paul discerns the situation. He recognizes reconciliation is in order here. And while forgiveness with God is essential, making things right with our fellow brother or sister is absolutely essential as well. So he leads Onesimus to see this and then to act on it. And Paul finally recognizes God has clearly placed him there does have to be a sovereign recognition of what God is doing, right? When we feel like, why me? Why do I have to build the bridge? Why do I have to go to all the work? Why do I have to be trampled on to bring these people together? We can easily go that route. But he sovereignly, 
apparently comes to the understanding that it is his role, his privilege to stand in the gap, to take their burden upon himself, modeling Jesus Christ and peacemaking for the sake of the gospel. And then to serve these two brothers so that they may know the benefits, even as Eva Kaur mentioned, the, the regret of wasting 50 years of her life in the throes of bitterness, the joy that forgiveness brought, the burden that was rolled off her back. Now, it's, it's been sometimes a matter of debate whether or not forgiveness can truly take place if one party chooses not to recognize or to repent of an offense that has taken place between two believers. This is a fairly common thing. It's, it's essentially the same basic challenge that we have if one party, let's say, has passed away. And that actual transaction of granting forgiveness, of hearing words spoken, is just not possible. Well, a few things to keep in mind if this situation is yours. First, recognize every Christian is called to forgive a sinning brother or sister, no matter if it's a one-time thing or if it's a 70 times 7 type of thing. A spirit of forgiveness should be in the forefronts of our hearts. But reconciliation, that repair, that coming together, is sadly not always possible in this life. God calls us to control all that we can control, but to trust Him if things aren't reciprocated on the other side. This sometimes just comes with sleeping at peace, knowing God will call into account every party in His time according to His plan, and we can rest in that. Romans 12:18 is so helpful. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it's not possible. But as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, may it never be that peace does not flow from you. If indeed you're able to do something about it. But also recognize sometimes there are those times when nothing can be done and the process of reconciliation cannot reach God's desired end. But in that event, trust in God. He is sovereign and he will work his purposes in his way. But how does the book of Philemon translate into our individual lives? How do we work this amazing short story of forgiveness and reconciliation into our hearts so we don't leave uh, unchanged by it? Well, first, we, we have to see that we're called to fight for a heart of forgiveness. You've got to fight for a heart of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis gives great words of caution to those who have been wronged and the, the problem of forgiveness, the challenge of forgiveness in his book, The Weight of Glory, when he writes this. You must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or hurt or to pay out. The difference between this situation and the one in which you, you are asking God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. As regards my own sin, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that my excuses are not really as good as I think they as good as I think. As regards other men's sins against me, 
It is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are better than I think. One must therefore begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. But even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we pray, forgive our trespasses, As we forgive those who trespass against us, we are offered forgiveness on no other terms.